Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. This digitized and re-edited interview aired as a Bookwaves program in 2011. In 1991, my co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I had the opportunity to speak with Kurt Vonnegut, Jr., 1922 to 2007. Kurt Vonnegut Jr. is the author of several novels, including Slaughterhouse-Five, Cat's Cradle, Player Piano, Hocus Pocus, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, several collections of essays. At the time, he was on tour for a book titled Fates Worse Than Death, an autobiographical collage of the 1980s. And the interview starts with Vonnegut talking about his books of nonfiction and essays. Speaking is a large part of my income, produces a large part of my income, mostly in universities, and also I write an op-ed page every so often. So every 10 years, I have collected whatever I've said. It's really a non-book. I was saying to somebody else earlier, is if you've been around as long as I have and was well-known, you're expected to hit nothing but home runs, you know, as you're supposed to be like Babe Ruth and point to the flagpole and then wham, off it goes. And, you know, I, I want to be able to lay down bunts and, and put one right over the head of the <laughs> first baseman. I'd, I'd say this is a, a very nicely placed bunt. Since it's confined to the 80s, it missed the great Gulf victory by a, a hair. I'm going to speak at Kent State next week, and I'm going to talk about the uh, idea of heroes. You know, you put a helmet on somebody in a camouflage suit, one of those you know, those camouflage suits make you completely invisible. Then the person is a hero, and that's quite new. Uh, as during the Second World War, when we came home, it was like getting out of a hospital, and there wasn't much of a welcome. And hell, it was, we all came home at different times. There was no big victory parade, and they were all looking for jobs. And uh, we were the same jerks we were when we left. And, and my relatives and friends had... And I had enough of a sense of humor to know that we weren't heroes. <laughs> but there was a, a great sense of optimism and, and collective mission at the end of World War II. Oh, was there enough? should have been. As, oh, yes. And any, any gloominess I have, as any deep melancholy I have, is about what might have been instead of what did, did happen. Certainly a case in point is I owe my life to the Red Army as they liberated the part of Germany, where I was a prisoner, and also we couldn't have beat the Germans by ourselves without the Russians. Lord, the sacrifices they made at Stalingrad and Leningrad and all that, and now they're going to starve to death this winter. It's 1945 and it's 1991. Just for the moment, though, let me take you back to 1939. Does the name Ferdinand Dilla mean anything to you? Should it? Bull session? Oh, for heaven's sakes. 
But you were Ferdinand or Ferdy or Ferdinand Dilla, author of The Bull Session. Yes. Would you tell us about that? Well, I've, my goodness, as I can't go back that far. I can't remember anything before I was 28. <laughs> <laughs> Your column in the uh, Shortridge High Daily. Echo. Yes. Uh, well, well, that was one of the few high schools in the country that had a daily, and a lot of uh, writers came out of Shortridge High School. As a result, Hemingway went to a school with a high school daily, too. Do copies of the paper, do your writings survive? Uh, no, I, I doubt if they're worth it. Uh, the archaeology that uh, I have seen and was published with things I wrote for the Cornell Sun when I went to Cornell, and we were just getting into the uh, Second World War, and I uh, wrote passionate defenses of Lindbergh, who was in trouble for having accepted the decoration from the Nazis and also saying that they had a hell of an air force. And I'm still very fond of Lindbergh. I've looked at stuff I wrote for The Sun, and it was very political, and I'm not sorry about any of it. World War II influenced you to a very great degree. Certainly, Slaughterhouse-Five is based on your your experience in Dresden, and you state that Hocus Pocus is based on uh, a valley that was destroyed during World War II. Yeah, where I wound up uh, after the war was over. It was in a valley, but... What an experience to be in a just war, you know, because there have been almost none. That's bound to do something to you, particularly when the results turn out <laughs> as to be, turn out to be so, so disappointing. Well, except for the fact that even though we've got <clears throat> weapons of destruction for you know forty-five years, we were also in a position where there were no major wars. That the Mexican standoff between the Soviet Union and the United States yeah. was such that it was little wars being fought rather than conflagrations. Well, yeah, but again, that's pretty ethnocentric. Uh, because I, what I covered the the end of, of the Nigerian Civil War, the Biafran War, and several million people died in that thing, and they, they were Igbos, and so, so who cares? And so, and so, yeah, I think there were wars where, where countries we know almost nothing about lost more of their young people, and we did in Vietnam, for instance. And so, yeah, the United States was at peace. But I think that it wasn't the hydrogen bomb uh, that kept the peace in Europe. I think it was the common sense of the people that they weren't going to send their kids to war again, having seen too much of war. And, of course, they, we had World War One, and then right on the heels of that, World War Two, and it was nauseating. And parents, parents used to send their kids gladly to war to learn how to be neat and that. <laughs> to be respectful. <laughs> you you make the point repeatedly, and you make it very powerfully in Fates Worse Than Death, that war is stupid and futile and possibly the greatest horror ever invented by our wonderful species. And yet you speak of World War Two as a just war. I, I wonder if you say so with irony in your... Not at all. Not at know. all. It seems to me it had to be fought. Well, um, how can you reconcile these positions? I don't know. Is is just intuitively, I, I feel that that's right, and there are all sorts of contradictory things. As I earlier, earlier said, I would have been dumb enough to go to the Vietnam War, even though I'd helped other people stay out of it, uh, because if my neighbors go, I go. As I had that feeling, and they, and I, I think I'm, I just had sort of a Norman Rockwell upbringing, <laughs> but there's no question about it. The Second World War was a just war, but fought without restraint. Is uh, and it, it was racist in the Pacific, too. You mentioned that at the end of the war, you 
you were a prisoner of war in Dresden, Germany, and you mm -hmm. were liberated by the Red Army, Soviet Army, Russian troops, whatever term we mm -hmm. might use. Uh, what was your experience and feeling about that, and how would you contrast that with later events of the Cold War? I was grateful to the uh, Red Army in a mechanical way, as I realized that I owed my life to them, but they were as ugly as they could be. A lot of them reindeer herders, I think, and, and Asiatics of all sorts that I'd never seen before, as Kyrgyz and Kazakhs and all that. And these babies were tough, right on the cutting edge. They were still coming, and they were still facing some opposition from Germans or looking for it. So they were horrible, but I still owed my life to them. Uh, you returned to the U.S. and uh, spent some time at the University of Chicago. But the next uh, experience in your career is one that I've I've never heard you address in, in any public forum. And that was your time as a police reporter. Would you talk about that? Yeah, well, in in Chicago, they have a unique organization called the Chicago City News Bureau, and it's supported now by all the newspapers and TV stations and, I guess, radio stations in, in Chicago, police reporters covering the town steadily for all of them. It's sort of a tripwire outfit. And the minute we turn up a story, we flash it to all our subscribers, and they would either print our story or ignore it or send uh, a big-time reporter and news crew to cover the story more in depth. And so, yeah, when I when I was in grad school at the University of Chicago, I needed money. I had a wife and a kid. So I also worked as a reporter, and it was eight-hour shifts, and you never knew you could get sent to the north side, the west side, or the south side. I'm extremely proud of it. I'm proud of that as, as having been an infantryman. I said, you know, I really did it. I did the real thing. They were a tough outfit, and some of the reporters, uh, some of the old guys still carried guns. I betrayed people. I was I taught how to betray people is to gain the trust of people who had who should not trust me because whatever they said I was going to print. City News Bureau would say, uh, a guy has just been killed. So the rewrite man on the other end says, well, what does his wife say? I said, I don't know. How would I know that? He said, call her up and tell her you're Sergeant Flaherty of the Chicago Police. I stopped it quite quickly, though. You recently made a comment, which I, which I overheard. It was in another context. Mm -hmm to the effect that some of the best writing done today is in the mystery and crime fiction realm. Is there any connection between this Chicago News Bureau experience and your feeling about crime fiction? I don't know. Maybe it's, it's what I saw was so gross and was so clumsy. It's crimes so clumsy as I remember. One, it's, it's pieces of a body kept showing up in different parts of Chicago wrapped in a Polish newspaper, <laughs> really not much, not a very subtle mystery, and, and there's not going to be a whole lot of characters in solving that. No, I don't think so, as, as I'm principally a consumer of books, is what I was educated as a biochemist, and then I was educated as an anthropologist. I've never made a systematic study of literature, never had to prove that I understood a book. So, just in a state of nature, as I, I think, my God, this guy can really write. Who is, who is the guy uh, who wrote uh, uh, New Hope for the Dead? Charles Wilford. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just started reading him, and man, he can really write. And and uh, there are lots of people like that. And I'm very touched by how much good writing there is going on. Is there more good books than you could ever read? How about in science fiction, which is where you cut your eye teeth? Well, I would say the standards are lower there, as there's never been much for characterization, and and uh, they've emphasized mostly technology. It's written largely for young people who, who feel threatened, I think, by emotional entanglements and, and going into love and hate and all that too much. 
Well, you started uh, in your early days by writing what could be called science fiction. In fact, there are elements that might be called science fictional scattered throughout all your books, including Hocus Pocus, of course, Slaughterhouse-Five, and many of the others. Do you see science fiction still as a viable way or fantasy as a viable way to state uh, a point about our world today? And do you think it's being done outside of your own work? I think science fiction has a usefulness to scientists, suggesting to scientists what they might daydream about, and in the Soviet Union particularly. When they talk about, about speculative fiction, they're describing a sort of experiment. You know, it's what if, what if, what if, and it may be related to a new way to travel or, or a new way to send information or whatever. Asimov science. He's a PhD in biochemistry. Speculating about robots, what robots are, what they can do, and all that. And that is useful to science and to engineering. And I like that a lot. And uh, there are a lot of people who are just going to be bored stiff, as they would be bored stiff by uh, um, the manual of how their automobile works or whatever. The science fiction writers have been a family, have been a folk society. It's sort of an accident, but they hang out together and they write each other letters and they're very fond of each other. And also, they don't criticize each other. You know, <laughs> just as we don't, we don't criticize our relatives. I tried to get in that, get run with them for a while. But I couldn't write as fast as they can, you know. I'd decide to say, hey, I liked your story, and amazing, or whatever. And I would get a 10-page letter, single-spaced. You know, they were, the, <laughs> they were the first guys to use electric typewriters. Just when IBM made an electric typewriter, they had no idea whether anybody wanted such a thing. And boy, the science fiction writers really understood immediately. In 1960, you responded to a survey by science fiction fans that was published under the title who Killed Science Fiction? Mm -hmm. And you made the following statement in response to that question. You are trying to conduct a post-mortem without a corpse. I would love to provide you with one. I would love to see the expression science fiction butchered this very minute in order that stories with science in them not be identified in the minds of intelligent readers with pulpers, beginners, and hacks. Mm -hmm. Do you still feel that way? Oh, yeah. It's, I think it was a, a very artificial scheme for running a bookstore, I guess, or maybe a library. And I've I've said that they, what I, I think the greatest novels are probably Victorian novels is better than anything we've written, except they left out sex. You know, life, in fact, finally was terribly misrepresented. Anyone now who writes a story, a contemporary story, taking into consideration the automobile and the TV and uh, the facts and whatever else, is also leaving a huge hole in the story. And I've said elsewhere that Critics generally come out of English departments, and they're very suspicious of, of the physics departments and the chemistry departments and think they're humorless and haven't got any rhythm, and which isn't the case at all. Is I think the wittiest people often in universities are the physicists. Their experiments are exquisite practical jokes on nature. Yeah, you've got to include technology in books now. And, and again, people, critics who've come up through English departments, nothing else like to feel it. Anybody who knows how his refrigerator works couldn't possibly be an artist. Vonnegut had many central characters in his books, including Kilgore Trout and Elliot Rosewater. Rosewater, a millionaire, was the main character in a book called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Elliot Rosewater makes mm -hmm. a speech, which is possibly one of the, well, it certainly is one of the most quoted paragraphs out of all Kurt Vonnegut. It's the one that begins, I love you sons of bitches. You're all I read anymore. You're the only ones who will talk about the really terrific changes going on. 
the only ones crazy enough to know that life is a space voyage, and not a short one either, but one that'll last for billions of years. And Elliot goes on. Mm -hmm. Various critics have said, well, Vonnegut really means that, speaking through Rosewater, or other critics have said, but Rosewater was a drunken maniac. Vonnegut put those words in the mouth of a drunken maniac for good reason. What well, he, was the real reason? He wasn't that drunk and he wasn't that crazy, I hope. Is that, I mean, that's a pretty terminal case that you described there. No, I, I really meant it. It's the large issues are... As most people don't read books to uh, have the large issues raised, but science fiction writers do. I think they're untruthful, is, is their vested interest. During the moonwalk, as CBS brought a whole bunch of us together in a room to fill dead time, and Arthur Clarke was there, and Buster Crabbe, who had been uh, Flash Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> Gloria Steinem is, is too Le Monde was there, and we could have all the sandwiches we wanted, and there was often we'd get called in to testify before Walter Cronkite just to kill time. I know that one science fiction writer was just sitting there in that room and we were all watching on the screen and the big stuff was happening and I guess maybe a guy was taking the first step on the moon and one guy was saying, it begins, it begins, it begins. And another guy behind me was saying, it ends, it ends, it ends. I mean, that's about as far as we can go. That's about as far as we, as, as we can afford to go unless we find some other way to go through space. In Sirens of Titan, as early as 1953, you said, the bounties of space, of infinite outwardness, were three, empty heroics, low comedy, and pointless death. Are you really that pessimistic about it? Well, you have to breathe, you know. Well, Arthur Clarke is, is really, and uh, some other science fiction writers, our vested interest is if they became as pessimistic as, as I am, they'd lose their audience. Do you feel your own politics have changed over the course of the past 40 years? I really don't understand what this great change is that people are supposed to go through, where they are liberal when they're young and then become conservative when they're old. And I guess I've seen it in Saul Bellow and what John Dos Passos, I guess. I haven't felt that at all. It's, no, I haven't changed my politics remotely and haven't, haven't found any tug in that direction whatsoever, so I'm mystified when, when somebody uh, really turns against the people. But that, that means that over the course of these 40 years that there's a consistency in your own work that most writers simply don't have that. Yeah. Well, again, I talk about people having a vested interest. It turns out I can make a decent living being what I am, and I'd be foolish to change. And you imagine... How long Buckley would last if, if he changed his opinions about anything. What do you think changed in you after your nervous breakdown and suicide attempt in 84? Did anything in that realm change at all? It was kind of liberating in a way, and I, I wrote a little about it there. It's, it's maybe what I'm seeing is what might have happened if I hadn't killed myself. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and this is sort of a punishment. Well, it was certainly making a point, and of course, a successful suicide. I, I really did my best, and I really loaded myself up with stuff that was sure to kill me. It's just somebody found me, I don't know, about an hour and a half later, making these burbling sounds and, and breathing very noisily and all that, and, and they got me pumped out, or I would have died. But anyway, I I made a point, you know. I made a point that really, as things are so bad, my life isn't worth living anymore, and, and I was willing to back that up. The only terrible thing about suicide is that you encourage other people to do it. Your books, Bluebeard and Hocus Pocus, were written after the suicide attempt, two of your strongest books, and it feels as if you found more of a purpose 
in your writing that was beginning to fade with books like Slapstick. Mm -hmm. Well, I I guess a, a one thing a suicide attempt would do would it would you know not only tell others uh, hey you know you better change a little bit <laughs> is it uh, I impressed myself with how much I cared about life that I was willing to end it if it wasn't to my liking. You asked me whether I changed my mind in politics, and I haven't. And also, my talent, such as it is, hasn't faded either. I could go on writing books. I mean, just being me, let's not talk about my talent, but I can continue like Old Man River indefinitely. At time. I, if, if I have time, I haven't had much time, but when I do get time, I'll write another book, and it, it'll be pretty much like these. Hemingway really uh, ran out of steam. Well, he made a sincere suicide attempt. He sure did. Do you know the Ray Bradbury story? Uh, it's called the Kilimanjaro device. This guy, I don't know who he is, but he's got this sort of magic jeep, and he's driving along, and he's up in the, in Idaho, up in the foothills of Idaho, and there's this old man with a pot belly and a gray beard. He's out hiking all alone, and his shoulders are hunched over. And so the guy in the jeep stops and says hello to him and identifies him as Mr. Hemingway and says, why don't you get in? And Hemingway says, why should I? And the guy says, I can arrange for you to die in an airplane crash on the top of Kilimanjaro. And so Hemingway gets in and gets a dignified death and, instead of... Uh, there, are, there are many famous people here that we're talking about. I'd like to ask you a question about Mother Night, uh, the book in which you say, this one, I know what the moral is. Mm -hmm. We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. Now, the hero of that book is a strange character named Howard W. Campbell, Jr. At the time the book was written, two of the most prominent editors in the science fiction field were a fellow named Howard Brown at Amazing Stories and John W. Campbell, Jr. at Astounding. Yeah, it was an accident. It was I mean, an accident? Yeah, but, it, I mean, it, it was an accident. It was, in fact, based on the confusion of the two names. I'm persuaded now that you pointed out. It's a pain in the neck thinking up names for characters. You want to get on with the story, and none of them sound quite right. And Yeah, I probably cobbled it together without intending to be funny. What about Kilgore Trout versus Theodore Sturgeon, another fish? Very name? close. And now that Ted is gone, as, as people ask me who Kilgore Trout was, did I say it was Sturgeon? Of course, he, at the end of his life, he was a very successful writer. Years ago, when I was living on Cape Cod, somebody said, hey, Ted Sturgeon is on the Cape. Somebody's loaned him a beach house. It's get in touch with him. And so I did. And he looked, he was in terrible shape, uh, very pale, and uh, all alone in a beach cottage in the winter time. And I would say, Ted, come on, let's let's go for a walk on the beach. Or, you know, come on over for supper. No, he couldn't, couldn't, couldn't. He had to write, had to write, had to write. And he was making a fraction of a penny a word, and he was a swell writer, and not not about to write anything else but stuff for amazing stories and so forth. But he, in the end, he was quite successful. Elliot Rosewater, being a person interested, very interested in science fiction, Kilgore Trout, being a science fiction writer, both major figures in the Vonnegut opus, caused me to ask about your experience at the Milford Conference. Would you talk about that? God, you know a lot about me that I'd forgotten. Yeah, well, I'm trying to remember. That was the, the one gathering of, of science fiction writers I went to, and I liked all the people, and I listened to what they were saying. And what I remember is the the guy who eventually wrote The Sand Pebbles. Do you remember that book? Uh, Richard McKenna. Yeah, just been discharged. 
he be a career guy, I guess, in the Navy. He had just married a librarian, and they had come to learn about writing. <laughs> and he was listening most respectfully to all us pros, and then, and then very soon after that, he wrote that really wonderful book, Is the Sand Pebbles. I think the family feeling that they had, I didn't feel it as part of the family. It didn't seem to me that discuss the discussions were really very serious. Just enjoying each other's company it was sort of a, a Sunday school picnic. Phil Farmer eventually wrote a book under the name of Kilgore Trout. Mm -hmm. You gave him permission to do yes, this? Yes, I did. Uh, well, he was after me for a long time to do this, and we've never met. What I, I had to dream, giving a whole lot of people permission to to write Kilgore Trout novels so that at church sales, you know, it, it, <laughs> 20 years from now, there'd be all these lousy books by <laughs> Kilgore Trout. Farmer and I only talked on the phone a couple of times, and this book, I, I wanted no money from it and um, didn't want to look at it before it was published. It turned quite ugly as he got quite mad at me. I wanted to write more Kilgore Trout novels, and... and uh, I got some very unfriendly reviews, as though I had written it, and the publisher, who was my own publisher, published it, giving every possible impression that I had written it. But Farmer was uh, quite bitter at me, and, and in some of the fan papers, uh, about not allowing him to write more and all that. And, uh, you know, he never called me up, uh, uh, let's have a cup of coffee or let's have a beer or anything. So it was quite unsatisfactory all the way around. Uh, you made the statement in one place... Uh regarding uh, theory of writing, that uh, I guarantee you that no modern story scheme, even plotlessness, will give a reader genuine satisfaction unless one of those old-fashioned plots is smuggled in somewhere. How do you feel about plots and, and formal structure in fiction? Well, it's, you have to. when I teach writing, what I'm teaching largely is sociability, is how to think about the reader, is how to keep the reader going, and there are certain things you have to do to keep the reader reading, whether you're, whether you're ashamed to pander to the reader to that extent or, or whatever. And I, I told about a date I had with a Southern girl and we uh, during the war, and we just really did not like each other at all. But her Southern baloney kept it, made the evening bearable. It was real sweet the whole time, and you have to do that to keep a, a reader reading. And the reason there are so few precocious fiction writers teenagers for instance aren't sociable enough can't think about whether the other person is having a good time it's only later that you become generous and so finally you're teaching generosity some people resent this and others don't but the plot keeps people going in fates worse than death as i point out that two violations of that rule or any rule you want to make about storytelling are hemingway's uh, hemingway's most important stories where absolutely nothing happens one is Big Two-Hearted River, and the other is a clean, well-lighted place. Nothing happens. And you hardly know that people, there's nothing to grip your attention, and they are absorbing. It's true, though, that as soon as you make a rule, a literary rule of any sort, you could always find something good that's going to break the rule. Oh, sure. Well, the motto out at Iowa, when I taught there, the writer's workshop for a couple of years, was whatever works, works. And, and of course, the writer's workshop is a place to experiment. A couple of the, uh, the the literary quirks in your books are um, you tend to repeat phrases, so it goes, hi-ho, for example. Uh, you also have short chapters that very often end in punchlines, mm -hmm. and very often you have chapters that have nothing to do with the rest of the book, but they're kind of there as mini-essays. Mm -hmm. 
how did you develop that? It just come out of your own self? Well, it, I think uh, probably it was inspiration inspired by jazz as much as anything else. And what I've always liked about jazz musicians is, you know, is, is playing a foggy day in one town or something. Jazz musician will just decide, well, hell with it, that's enough, you know. He'll <laughs> stop, and then drum will go on, and the bass will keep on playing and pick up something else. But that, that moodiness, I, I like very much in jazz, is start and stop. And uh, whatever I do, I have to do. Every flower has to bloom as the kind of flower it is. And I bloomed as this kind of flower, and it turned out to have some fans. Once you became established with a large popular readership, you still had a lot of trouble with critics, as I recall. At one point, you made the statement that all of a sudden, critics want me squashed like a bug because I was barbarous. Are you still having that problem? Yeah, well, these people are, are highly specialized in their education. I'm talking about the sort of person who would get a job as a book reviewer with Time, Newsweek, Washington Post, New York Times. And uh, these people customarily come up through Andover, Exeter, St. Paul's and, and, you know, very good educations in literature, particularly in Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Williams, whatever. So they are looking to Europe, and they, they, the books that they admire are books of another era and also are, are, tend to be European. And I'm a Middle Westerner, and you guys are even worse off. But New York looks to Europe, really, and, and they're mystified by people from Indianapolis. What Nate L. Mencken said about Willa Cather, Mencken lived in Baltimore, Say sorry, couldn't read her because he wasn't interested in those people <laughs> way out in the wilderness somewhere. But another thing that a person with a conventional education in literature will look for in a writer is a sign that although low-born, this person has potential to be a gentleman, appreciates good food, and has gone to some trouble to visit some cathedrals and, and all that. And I'm no gentleman whatsoever. I present no credentials to have a future in the upper class. You've been listening to a 1991 interview with the late Kurt Vonnegut Jr., conducted by myself, Richard Walensky, and my then-co-host, Richard A. Lupoff. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.